You're listening to episode 144 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It is the 29th of April 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. And Steph, you're in the office. I'm in the office. You can see me on camera sitting in our lovely uh, open plan office in the grounds of Dragon Hall. It's looking very sunny and lovely today. Hopefully it won't be too soon until we can podcast together in person again. I know. Can you imagine? No, I absolutely can't. It's beyond my wildest dreams, Simon. <laughs> yeah. And then I, then I can have the extra editing challenge of all of the Dragon Hall's creaks and traffic noises and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Right, that's that's one of the problems of being in such a lovely but a very historic old building is that everything creaks, the windows don't offer much sound insulation. The walls uh, have actual holes in. Yeah, anyone coughs or if it rains, we're just in trouble. Yeah, I think it's called character. <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's full of character, this lovely building, <laughs> and I love it because of that. So what have we got on the show today, Steph? So today we have a lovely conversation between our former writer-in-residence, Varney Capodeo, and Jeremy Noel Todd from UEA. Varney was one of five writers-in-residence back in February as part of our Imagining the City project. So they were a virtual writer-in-residence joining us from Edinburgh. And we've got a whole series of podcasts coming up with Varney and the other writers over the next few weeks. So do make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of those. Now, we also have Lots of great content from these writers, including Varney, over on the website. So you can read some material to go along with today's podcast. In particular, I recommend checking out Lighthouse and Anchorage because it's referenced at the start of the podcast. And we even have a nice reading from them on that blog post. Varney also wrote two really valuable articles for us on keeping a writerly state of mind and five everyday writing tips for any writer. So do head over to the website and check those out too. Yeah, we'll put links to all of that down in the show notes as well. So you can jump over there nice and easily. Okay, well, let's hand over to Jeremy and Varney talking a couple of months ago. My name is Jeremy Noel Todd and I'm at the University of of East Anglia in Norwich and I'm talking today with Varney Capaldeo who is in Edinburgh. Hi Varney. Hello Jeremy. Um, We're going to chat about how you have been residing virtually in Norwich and writing while also being uh, up in Scotland. I think there is a tendency to think of Julian being very lonely and solemn but you obviously imagine her as 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 having a, a central role in her community. Uh, and perhaps we should say that that cell was uh, located on the edge of a church, which is just over the road, literally from the National Centre for Writing now, uh, which is located in Dragon Hall, which boasts a, a splendid cartoony dragon in its beams. I, I believe that uh, there are at least three ways in which Julia of Norwich was sociable. And one of those is written into her text, where she keeps insisting that even though she happened to have had a series of visions or showings, as she called them, that these visions were general, that they were meant for everyone and not for her in particular. And she added that people who were better than she was might never have visions at all. And therefore, it was her duty to communicate such visions as she did have. So it, it was very much not about her as an individual having memoiristic inspiration. She believed that what she was seeing was the property of the world and that she had a duty to, to channel and to edit rather than to compose as such. 
the second way in which she was sociable, I think, came to me when I saw her quite roomy cell, which I, I would be very grateful to live in a cell like that, on, on the south side of the church. And the windows, uh, so although she did have a grill, she would see people even when the grill was closed. Uh, and uh, at a meeting for the National Writers' Centre the other day, just pointed out to me that this was rather like us meeting via Zoom, that you'd have people flickering in and out of your screen. But it struck me how all the noises and all the smells, the processions, the bells, the incense would have been happening all the time. And it would have been the closest thing to living in road. There would have been no getting away from the sound of human traffic in that church. Well, it's, I was going to say, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not at all a, a, an isolated location. It would have been in, in the heart of, of, of that, that bustling, mercantile, medieval city that you evoked in your, in your journal entry. Yes, and I think also there is nothing of solitude in it other than the fact that she was living alone in the cell. It would have been constantly surrounded by people or by preparations for ceremonies, for the, the liturgy of the daily office and so on. And uh, the third way, I think, in which it was sociable is that people continue to visit even now. And when the church was bombed during the Second World War, I believe that part of the reason it was restored is that it's such a popular place for visitors. W would that be right? And I believe as well that there's a kind of energy that is generated by the thought of someone living there so intently. Mm. If you visit now, it seems very interactive. There are little candles set out that you can light. And the, when I went recently, there's a little dish of hazelnuts referring to one of Julian's visions. You could play with the hazelnuts. Yes. And you can go around the church and you can sing and you can do the Stations of the Cross and you can dance and you can read aloud and not sing that I did any or all of these things. But one feels incited to do that by the residual energy. It's interesting that you mention it being bombed in the war because that must have happened around the time that, that, that Julian had a, a something like a poetic revival by being cited in T.S. Eliot's poem, Little Gidding, famously, uh, the lines from her revelations, uh, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, are, are used by Eliot as one of his uh, allusions in that work. Um, but I have always wondered, because after the war, there was a less well-known poet living in Norwich called Francis Webb, an Australian who ended up in Norwich for some time um, and was living in the in the mental hospital uh, on the edge of the city. And, and he was uh, intensely Catholic in his worldview and in his imagination, but he doesn't seem to have mentioned or possibly even have been aware of Julian of Norwich, which surprises me. So this is something I'd like to find out further about, quite how well-known she, she was in that post-war period. I remember you sending me some of Francis Webb's work and the sort of towering vision that was in it. Well, he lives he lives out on the edge of Norwich, and there is there is a, a, a an actual tower um, which was built on the estate of a Catholic landowner in the nineteenth century, a, a brick folly, um, and that's the only part uh, of the the buildings of the estate that is left because it's now a golf course. But you can go to the golf course and you can visit Francis Webb's tower because he does write a really spectacular poem about it. So he's he he is perhaps more a poet of the 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 lonely edge of Norwich than than the city centre. 
Um, spe- speaking of speaking of the city centre, though, I, I did just want to say that because we can't be together in a room talking about these things, which would be the nicest way to have this conversation, uh, I wanted to suggest that we imagine for the rest <laughs> of our talk that we are, that we have perhaps been in Norwich walking along the river, uh, went some looking at the swans. It's a morning such as it is here, nice, uh, a bit breezy, a bit sunny, a hint of spring in it. We walk around the cathedral close. We've said hello to the statue of Julian. Perhaps the magnolia blossoms are just coming out. And we've ended up in the Maid's Head Hotel, where we are taking morning tea with crustless sandwiches uh, and cakes, all being served by a very polite ghost. Uh, and in order to, to keep the conversation going, um, uh, I have I brought along a little, well, it's actually uh, the, the lid of a biscuit tin with six folded pieces of paper in. Uh, and each piece of paper contains a word that I wanted to ask you about um, after um, doing some reading uh, last night. Um, and we can pick those at random and they can just sort of take our conversation in different directions. It can, in fact, manifest the ghost because the ghost normally manifests in a cloud of lavender. <laughs> in in the maid's head. Yes, you can also imagine the scent of lavender. A fragrant ghost. Ghosts um, are one of the topics in my biscuit tin. But should we should we should we take a lucky dip and see what we've got? Yes, and I hope you get the custard cream. <laughs> I've actually got music. Um, I wanted to ask you about music. Uh, and the writing life. I know that music has been very important to you in different ways, but take take it in any direction you want to. This is quite curious because I was thinking about uh, being here in Edinburgh as well as in Norwich because we're simultaneously in two places and uh, mm. recently joined the New Haven Choir, which used to be called the New Haven Fishwives Choir, which sings a lot of repertoire literally to do with fishing with herring, with oysters, uh, with being pilloried outside the church for having consensual sex, that sort of thing. And uh, it it struck me that maybe some of these songs might have made their way down the coast uh, because uh, gutting fish was a skill. And I recall Mm. a window in Bluefield Church not that far outside Norwich, which commemorates the herring girls. You can see in modern stained glass uh, very beautiful baskets of silvery hair yes. and also fisher girls in, in clumpy shoes, lovely clumpy black stained glass shoes. And I do wonder, those fer- those herring girls were from Glasgow, but I do wonder if they were singing Scottish songs in Norwich. Yes, and, and Blowfield Church is on the way from Norwich towards Great Yarmouth, where the herring girls uh, would have congregated and worked. Um, and of course, was a place where you had a, a, a residency um, perhaps your first Norfolk residency, would that be right? Yes, I think it may have been my first residency altogether. And I magnified the fish from the stained glass window and put them in, in a disused tennis net, which the vicar kindly found for me, in a giant <laughs> fishing net somewhere in the church and, and had stations of activity for people to do involving words that were gathered from different places in the church where writing was. What's extraordinary about that church is there's a place you can stand that was shown to me by the ladies who were helping out there. And I 
believe they were very senior. I wouldn't want to guess their age, but they had wisdom of a different generation. And they showed me a spot on the floor, which was very slightly worn. And that was a spot where the preacher would have stood in the Middle Ages. And if you spoke there, the whole building resonated. It began to vibrate with warm sound. It wasn't where the modern pulpit ah. is. And I'm not sure why it isn't in use. And I don't know how many churches possibly have that kind of spot preserved without knowing they do. That's really interesting because I went to Blowfield Church in the summer when things were more relaxed and it was it was possible just to sort of uh, pop in and out of buildings and so on. And I went in and it, it was deserted. I had a couple of my children with me and we, we, we explored the various things to be seen. And then the door opened and a man came in. We, we were over in one side of the church looking at the windows, I think. He went down the aisle to the centre of the church, to the, to the crossing, and he had a, an acoustic guitar with him and he just sat down and began to play it. He didn't sing, but it was beautiful playing. And so we came round and sort of said hello to him at a distance. And, and he explained that this was the place that he came to practice his acoustic guitar. He didn't. He didn't give any more explanation, and he he wasn't obviously connected to the church. But it suggests to me that he knew about that sweet spot. It's wonderful to think of the stone being wakened by resonances in that way. Well, another word I, on my on my little um, word papers, I've written associated words, uh, and one of them is something I've noticed coming up in your writing recently, and also when you were talking the other day to the poet Holly Pester, which is soundscape. Would you like to talk a bit about? what this term means to you? I'm not sure I know what it means to me as yet. And I'll probably put it on three levels. One is bodily sound. And I wrote a bit about that for the Critical Poetics, Teleportics, Telephony Conference based at Nottingham Trent University. And it became more obvious to me during social distancing and all the Zooming we've been doing, various types of long-distance communication. But it was obvious to me before that, because of having family 4,000 miles away, that when you are using these remote ways of communicating, there's a, a strange intimacy whereby you can hear the other person's breath, or you can hear their spit, so you can see inside the air. I, I can't see inside your air at the moment, Jeremy, don't worry. We don't tend to mention this, uh, but a large part of, of communicating in this way is actually the amplification of intimate bodily sound. And if we were meeting in a real life, we wouldn't be hearing that sound as closely. So a second part of the soundscape is literally what's inside your body as well as outside your body. I tend to wake up with a certain amount of tinnitus, which never quite goes away. So there's either a slight hiss or there's a tuning fork. But there's an exercise you can do, which I think is a stilling exercise, technically, where you tune into the furthest sound and then the next and the next and the next and the next until you arrive at the sound in the centre of your body. And what surprised me when I did that uh, is how sound goes in loops and layers. And if we didn't think about it, we'd never notice it. So I, I practised this, in fact, in Cambridge, uh, and what I expected to hear wasn't what I heard, uh, because standing under trees... Uh, they filtered the sound and bounced the sound and made microenvironments. So I would hear the traffic looping around in a large road as if it were much closer. And sometimes I would hear footsteps as if they were much further. It was quite curious. The third direction was memory. 
So that I, I think that, for example, if you go into Norwich Cathedral, even if the bells are ringing, you're always remembering bells, or at least I am. So there are certain ways in which what you can hear in your head or your associations, either with personal memory or cultural memory, are a real and vital part of what you hear physically. That makes me think of um, a, an early memory I have of my uh, my nan staying with us at Christmas uh, as a family, and she had lived most of her life uh, on the Wirral on Merseyside, and then she'd moved down to Norfolk to be nearer to her children. And I think my dad had somehow managed to get hold of a recording of the church bells uh, of Eastham, the town where she lived on the Wirral, uh, to play to her as a sort of surprise on Christmas morning. And I remember the really quite violent reaction she had. She was in she was in strong tears. Just hearing those particular bells really seemed to sort of shake her whole uh, frame. You know, obviously sort of to the distress of my parents who hadn't who hadn't meant to create this reaction. But bells, perhaps in particular, can do that. Yes, I think that it's also because they mark the day and the night. Mm. They mark the passage of time and the special occasions. Yes, they are coded in a way a lot of the, a lot of other sounds aren't coded for both joy and joy. But with bells, you're never sure what they're going to say when they start until they do their particular appeal. What you were saying about um, communicating long distance um, makes me think of a project that you did, I think, a couple of years ago. I, I find it hard to remember how long anything <laughs> was if it wasn't a year ago. Um, but it was it was prompted by memories of phoning your family uh, from Oxford in the 1990s, um, which is an experience I think both both of us had of, of using a payphone uh, in a cold corner of a college uh, to communicate home. Would you like to say a, a bit more about that? Some, some, something that has changed over the course of your adult life? That, in fact, is the same telephony project based at Nottingham Trent University. And that was in 2020, last year. Was it Was it last year or was it 2019? I'm not sure. Because for me, lockdown-like time began much earlier, as I was in Trinidad for reasons to do with my family's health in 2019, and effectively locked down for that reason, as so many, many people have been locked down before the pandemic for other reasons. Yeah, I'm not sure that that has changed the experience of using a payphone. I've had several occasions in the last few years where for whatever reason, for example, when I was traveling in Japan, my mobile provider kindly decided to block my mobile and go out of contact, believing that my mobile had been stolen. So I had no mobile use except when I was in the hotel and could get Wi-Fi sometimes. And then then I could Skype, that sort of thing. And I I was dependent on, on other kinds of communication. And then in railway stations, as, as recently, okay, that this shows my age, as recently as 2011, I was using payphones in Twickenham railway station, where I used to be stuck between train, trains on very cold nights. I'm sure that there are countries and, and areas where landlines are still very much in use in payphones. Yeah, I'm still quite proud of having a landline. Um, I, I, I feel that it stands for something. When I was in Trinidad recently and we had uh, storms uh, which would put out the electricity and therefore the Wi-Fi with uh, putting out the modem, it is absolutely essential to have a landline to get any news. And 
And all this talk of, of sounds and faint sounds and tuning in to the, the furthest um, noise as well as the, the nearest noise of your body um, makes me think of a, a, a phrase um, that, that you once uh, uh, formulated in a, in a piece of writing for PN Review. Um, I'm thinking of the, the, the reports and the letters, the sort of sh short prose pieces that you contribute to uh, PN Review magazine. Um, where you talked about your own practice as, as a poetics of reverberation and minor noise. Is, is, that, is that still for you a good description of what happens when you write? I think it is a good description. It's very much more about a quality of attention than anything to do with intentionality, at least when the compositional phase is more present to my mind. I want to offer you a biscuit at this point. I've, I feel we've talked enough to deserve biscuits, but I can't. So I, I'm going to offer you a piece of paper from my biscuit tin lid instead. The, the piece of paper I've picked is, is ghosts. So we can imagine perhaps ghost biscuits. Tell me about ghosts. Uh, ghost biscuits lack fiber. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a joke, isn't there? There must be a joke from the 1980s or 70s. What, what kind of biscuits do ghosts eat? Perhaps uh, listeners could write in with their suggestions to the punchline. Well, there's a place in Edinburgh, I think it's South Nidri Street, uh, which was uh, measured by some ghost hunters uh, who claimed to be international ghost hunters using state-of-the-art equipment uh, as having the most ghost density <laughs> or something like that. Uh, basically a kind of thickness of ghost, a sort of millefeuille of ghost the most of anywhere in the world. And that doesn't really surprise me because Edinburgh, Norwich <laughs> is, is honeycombed. Norwich has got tunnels. I don't think they're in use, but I'm always aware that it's honeycombed with tunnels. Edinburgh is literally built on many different levels. And uh, it's easy to think that lives might be continuing in some way along those strands. Uh, that I think that there may be something like residual recordings of the past, uh, or possibly we sometimes have the chance to see all of time as simultaneous, past and present, uh, because enough people in medieval and other locations seem to see things. So to think back to the poetics of, verber of reverberation, that relates to a kind of temporality that you might uh, achieve in a, in a poetic text. A, a ringing through ages. Yes, I think it came to, to go back to biscuits or rather pastries, a sort of real furry temporality. I'm sorry if that sounds flaky. There's <laughs> 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 lots of different <laughs> Very important. Are we having this in Gerald's? Yes, and then we, we could avail ourselves of, of hearty, um, small, bolder scones as well if we were, if we were particularly hungry after our walk. What, what is the link between Gerald's, the department store in Norwich, and printing? Ah, um, well, the family of Gerald, um, or the family business, I think goes back to the 18th century um, and didn't actually begin in Norwich, but somewhere else in East Anglia. Um, and uh, I couldn't quite tell you what the order of development was, but there was a, a very successful printing business and the department store, and they were owned and run by uh, the same family. Uh, and there is now a, a Gerald family trust um, 
which, for example, oversees the Gerald Print Museum, um, which you used to be able to visit on the banks of the River Wensum, which was open every Wednesday morning uh, and was actually, it was a little bit of a ghostly place. It was um, staffed by retired printers who um, were effectively carrying on their trade for fun um, with all the old machines uh, and uh, letter setting uh, equipment. Um, So it was a museum, but really it was the kind of place where you had to um, visit regularly and win the trust of the people who ran it um, to be allowed to play with all the uh, gadgets and and there were were many wonderful uh, printing machines in there i believe it has now relocated to one of norwich's many decommissioned churches but i I imagine it's probably just um wrapped up in cotton wool uh, at the moment i'm not sure because i mean that there are people who have carried on printing in safe masked and distanced ways certain Mm. nice press at the university of york is very much in operation yeah, printing seems to be going quite strong uh, in relation to poetry. There are, there are lots of people, I think, who are setting up um, quite hands-on way of producing poetry. I'm thinking of Earthbound Press, which you've probably seen, uh, who operate out of London, and they do a, a weekly poetry series publishing these these rather lovely folded sheets with a few new poems by a great variety of writers. Uh, and... Uh... Uh, there is, of course, your own landfill press. Well, there the, 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 the was now now under several layers <laughs> uh, of soil and uh, rubbish, but back in the archives, um, yeah, landfill press, which um, is how really we, we got to know each other when I published your uh, person animal figure pamphlet back in 2005. That was an extraordinary... Venture, because I remember that your plan was to put individual sequences into pamphlets, uh, which were of high quality and very beautiful to touch, slightly sort of uh, cringly paper, the right size to put in a pocket. That was the idea, was was pocket-sized poetic sequences. Um, and I worked with a printer who took took interest and, and pride in the materials that we were using and did advise on this particular sort of slightly tactile uh, cover, um, which then contrasted with the very smooth pages uh, within. Um, you're almost tempting me to get back into running a small press, which <laughs> tempt me not. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to pick another of my pieces of paper um, from my biscuit tin. There are some words that I haven't uh, uh, thrown at you yet, but they might come up. Um, okay, well, because on this uh, podcast, the idea is that we're talking about, about the writing life. Perhaps uh, we might uh, discuss things that would be particularly of interest to people who are starting out as writers, who are finding their way as writers. I thought I would ask you about the word notebooks. My notebooks die. Your notebooks die? I kill them. I sleep on them. They become ripped. I I've drink next to them large cups of tea. My notebooks are tragic business. <laughs> do you um, do you finish them? Um, and I ask because I'm aware that my own relationship to notebooks is very often unresolved in the sense that there are many begun and are not filled. And I've noticed that my daughter, who 
um, has an enormous amount of notebooks and loves to buy stationery, has has unfortunately uh, inherited this this habit of not completing notebooks. To be fair, only when I'm writing prose. Ah. And when it's anything else, such as commonplace books or quotations from other people, I always uh, fill them up from both sides. I start a book with a very seriously academic notebook, and then I start writing recipes and to-do lists and, and drafts of poems in the back. And sometimes I think of no poems at all. Whenever I think that about any particular month, I go and look in the back of a notebook and they'll invariably be one or two. As I'm sitting here, I can do notebooks and the ghosts because I'm sitting at a second-hand desk which brings together Norwich and Edinburgh very beautifully because it's a Dutch desk from the 19th century which would have belonged to somebody on a ship, possibly a ship captain. It's a Davenport. And it was sold to me as having mm. a compartment, which I'm not sure that I found. But there are two compartments in the sort of sides of the desk, as you'll know, with, with the Davenport. And I've filled those with notebooks. So my notebooks are literally around my feet, just encased in Dutch oak. Right. Dutch oak that's been to sea. Who knows, it might have been to Norwich. And, and do you keep biscuits in that desk? I don't. I haven't. It's a very good idea. Maybe maybe that's when I'll find the secret compartment. Yeah. Perhaps you'll find an old Dutch ship's biscuit. Still good to, to gnaw on. I probably would eat it if it were properly in a tin. <laughs> Do you maintain notebooks for different projects or different kinds of writing? Because you you, you mentioned prose, which, which you write a lot of in, in many different places. Uh, as as well as prose that that is um, part of your collections of, po- of poetry. Yes, so when it's prose nonfiction for publication, I tend to write straight into the computer, but I will have done research and often written that up in notebooks. Are you somebody who writes on their phone? No, what I use my phone for, because I'm very bad at art and I was told not to bother trying when I was two years old or so, and there's there's actually evidence, at least I don't know for how much longer, but all my copybooks in my mother's house in Trinidad, uh, and there's one from when I was two years old, and I'm already copying out rhymes quite nicely, like to market, to market, to buy a fat pig. Home again, home again, jiggity jig. Exactly, to market, to market, to buy a fat hog. And, and there's a water jug that the teacher, a very simple water jug of a few lines that the teacher has drawn for me to copy, and mine is wildly slanted. It looks as if somebody had taken a jug and just rearranged it to, to be seen by a two-dimensional being. And so what I use my phone for is to take photographs, because I, I do have a very strong visual memory, and I react to colour and shape and dimension. And now I take notes for what will become poems by taking lots of photographs. And one of the joys of this project is being able to walk around New Haven photographing it badly, and then match those up sometimes with photographs from when I walked around Norwich, photographing it badly. So that's that's a really interesting idea that that you use photos as a form of note taking. Do you then just access them on your phone? Yes, I don't do anything special with them, and many of them have vanished forever. You don't print them out and and pin them up on your wall to sort of create a a mind map of uh, of what you're about to write. I live up 31 anti-clockwise, very narrow spiral stairs, and there's no way that I'll be ordering that amount of printer ink and colours. 
I, I'm going to pick another of my uh, of my papers because, uh, and I'm going to cheat as well. I'm just going to find the one that uh, I've got in mind now. I was going to ask you about being Generation X because this is something you wrote about on the, I think it was for the Poetry on the Move website where um, you wrote a number of pieces over uh, the last summer that people can find. And you talked about being Generation X, which is that generation born between the, the mid-60s and, and 1980 or so. Um, to which we both belong, and the generation that has experienced quite significant technological change, um, certainly uh, in the last 20 years. You know, in the 1990s, for me, taking a photograph was always going to lead to printing it out, and that has, has just sort of tapered away by the time we get to 2021. What, what my phone has replaced is, to some extent, my scrapbook. Because I did love keeping scrapbooks with mm and whatnot, uh, and also collecting stones uh, and various bits of, of rubbish. The, the photographs are very similar to that. Uh, and perhaps that's something, obviously not taking away stones, which degrades environments. Perhaps that's something I should start doing again. The other, may, I mean, well, not the other, but the major um, technological change that we've experienced over that time is the, the advent of the internet. And it seems to me that that would have coincided with you beginning as a writer around that time in the 1990s was the time when people were beginning to use email and you could visit websites but in a in a sort of fairly rudimentary way do you do you feel as though the internet has 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 somehow kind of run in parallel with your writing life not really i've never had that relationship to the internet uh, for a few reasons one is because I grew up in Trinidad, uh, where people from many different diasporas uh, meet and fuse and channel each other's cultures in a way that isn't appropriation, but something different and without a label. And I hope it doesn't get stamped out by people who decide we're just primitive appropriators. Mm. I was always aware of being sort of interneted by, you know, the ocean, which, as, as Braffitt and Walcott and so many others have written divides and connects us. So th there was a sense of being part of a great connecting web anyway, and people would travel in person and they'd also bring back things. But my grandfather would travel to India and bring back uh, enormous books uh, in Sanskrit with the uh, geometric diagrams of, of Vedic astronomy and so on. And I didn't really have a sense of ever just being in one place. And then Another thing is that when, when I was introduced to the internet, it was in a very trivial way by someone at my college who wanted to send me a message with a, a rude story about Smurfette from the cartoon The Smurfs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it was the idea of sending a rude email, which seemed to excite them. And then the, the third reason is uh, that... The, the page of something like a medieval manuscript is very internet-like, depending on the manuscript you're looking at, uh, because you can go through different portals, uh, you can follow different signs and colors and messages. Uh, and if you have the sort of palace in your memory, uh, the kind of uh, cosmic web of knowledge, which would be assumed if you're reading a medieval manuscript, uh, then it, it's a very thoroughly hyperlinked page for your imagination, a medieval manuscript page. So there was that. And then when I was working for the Commonwealth Foundation briefly, I also realized how little 
internet access there's in the world. Uh, but in some countries we're working with uh, in 2013 to 14, there'd be 7% or 15% or there'd be concentration in the cities or there'd be just dial-up connections or people would access it, but there'd be one terminal per family and no smartphones or there'd be only smartphones and no computers except in the nearest city. And, you know, it's very, very patchy, really. Radio still has a huge reach. This makes me think, um, talking about the internet in this way, makes me think of a, a, another word, which perhaps you've coined, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but but it's a word that you discussed in one of your recent peer review pieces, plurilocalism, which, which seems very important to, to how you're thinking about things these days. Well, it's a transparent derivative for which I believe other people have used before, though probably not, probably not in the same sense. And uh, for me, it's about realizing that the more aware one becomes, one is a very stupid pronoun, but I don't know what else to say in English, the more aware I, we, you become of, as they say these days, embodied reality, the, the more it's necessary to realize how much of that embodiment is both memory and anticipation. And so necessarily any place that you're in starts to consist of multiple places. As I said to you, even now I'm sitting at a desk which went to sea on a Dutch ship. And I, and I suppose it's linked, and I think in your article it's linked with, with plurilingualism and, and, and being among languages. Yes, I've never forgotten hearing you read the Song of Songs in Norfolk mm. dialect. <laughs> Sitting in a train station one day. I, I did read it, but I was performing a text that was written by a 19th century um, parish priest who had researched the, the Norfolk dialect and, and wanted to put his research to, to good use, to virtuous use. I, I believe that, that uh, Britain does itself down when it doesn't recognise how plurilingual it naturally is, both in terms of long-established, I don't really want to use the word indigenous, as I only personally know one person of Pictish descent. So long-established varieties of language, but also in terms of how long supposedly other languages have been here. So I was very surprised, for example, to find that in Scotland there's been a significant Polish presence since the 15th century. And in that case, why wouldn't we consider Polish as one of the languages of Britain, not in an appropriative way, but in the same way that you can have uh, English and Telugu and Hindi all as languages in India, though they come from massively different linguistic and historical bases. Similarly, Urdu, which my mother's friend uh, in Lancashire, her daughters going to school were fluent in Urdu, English, and Lancashire dialect. And that... that mm. He has been present there for a number of generations. And talk, talking about these these words and these ideas and these experiences makes me think of another term that I, I noticed being important to you, and which perhaps is is important to your, your current project between Edinburgh and Norwich. Um, and that is micro travel, which I suppose is is maybe one way you could describe these journal entries that you're writing. You also talk about them as exercises of the heart. I do write all sorts of things, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm much happier to write about the heart and paper than to talk about my heart in person. Okay. 
That's why I ended up emigrating to Britain. (laughs) (laughs) Macro travel is an important concept to me because I think it's much less bleep than psychogeography. You can put in whatever pejorative you want there. The one I thought of isn't one I should put on a podcast. For example, if if I think about Norwich, I always think of it uh, in terms of going from place to place. And most of my life I've been able-bodied I would like to point out that disability isn't an absolute, uh, and uh, it's it's not really my place to speak about, uh, but all we are is really one slip on the ice from completely changing how we think of our bodies. But, I mean, for example, I've been around places with my mother, who is physically very disabled, and then I started seeing micro-qualities of terrain, like, is there a dropped curve? Is that a smooth path or a graveled path? And I had to use the same level of planning that I used to use in 50-kilometer hikes to get 200 meters. Then I started being attentive as well to to things like graffiti, which are place markers. There's somebody in Edinburgh who, during lockdown, has been doing what I call daily bread graffiti art. And they've been writing, doing your tea, which means, you know, drink your tea. All the way from Wadi, which is a bay to the west of me, through this bay, this port in, in New Haven, to the next port to the east in Leith, they have a kind of stamping ground. <laughs> Do you know tea? This is the... This- this is the photograph, isn't it, that that, that I saw on the Writer Centre Instagram um, of a sign saying "Dunya Tea," and on the other side, "Eat Your Bread," um, That's right. and in the middle, warning: This is an exposed structure and can be dangerous. Enter at your own risk. Is 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 this the the entrance to the um, the path that you're walking to the lighthouse? No, no. The lighthouse is a very safe and, and popular path. That's the entrance to the breakwater built. Ah. Stevenson's grandfather, which in fact I first heard about, at least I heard about Robert Louis Stevenson in relation to lighthouse writing, first on one of the literary walks around Edinburgh, led by the poet Ken Coburn. But I mean, the idea of marks and marking terrain obviously is, is very clear in Norwich, because you have the witch marks, the protective marks in the writer's centre, Dragon Hall. And then the last time I was in Norwich, you and I were looking at marks that we couldn't quite understand. Do you remember in that very old house? Oh, yes. The the, the very um, sort of wonky, slanted, wood-beamed house. And there were there were marks which seemed to be some sort of rudimentary counting. Uh, yeah, I do remember, but I, I don't remember quite what we concluded, other than that, that they were perhaps some sort of notes made by the builders to themselves. Yes, I wonder if there were builders' notes. I just wanted to mention for people who are listening and may not um, know your recent work because you publish in, in many different forms. Um, obviously, there, there are your your collections, a number of which have been published by Carcanet. There's also your collection Utter from People Tree uh, Press. But recently, it does seem to me that you've quite often been using the pamphlet as a way of, well, perhaps micro-publishing sets of, of, of different kinds of poems. And one that came out recently is the Dusty Angel from Oyster Catcher Press. Is that a sequence where micro-travel has informed your observations? Because um, uh, part of it is, is, is a series of walks around Trinidad. Yes, very much so, both micro-travel and, and plurilocalism. 
There's a, a particular walk around Queen's Park Savannah, which I think is a, has a perimeter of about 3.5 kilometres, which functions as a central roundabout in the city, despite being 3.5 kilometres, and was given for common use as a green space not to be built upon. People keep encroaching upon it, which is ridiculous. G- given by the family who held the state house, it's a curious place because there's a little French cemetery for the Pechier family in the middle, and a member of the family has a key to the lock, but only family members go in there or can be buried there. And apart from that, mm. it's vagrants who leap the wall. You wouldn't find ordinary people even going into the middle of Savannah, partly because of the crime rate. But uh, there are all sorts of things around it. Uh, there's the Archbishop's Palace, the Catholic Archbishop, uh, who has been growing things like breadfruit trees uh, to distribute to people, to make them more self-sufficient in poorer areas. And uh, there are also also women selling oysters and men selling oysters, which grow up the trunks of trees in the mangrove swamps. So they transport Ah. tree oysters, I don't know how, whether it's on on ice, from the mangrove swamps uh, to the city centre, to the savannah. It's it's a very curious place, and then you walk around it, you get to the general hospital, or you can get to the zoo, or cut up a hill and get a view of the city. I walk there almost every day, or run there, often with one or two particular friends, Judy Sky, Judy's cousin Afra. The point is that sometimes you try to plan walks and they don't happen, or you dream about the walks when you're in a different place, or you gloat about the mm. walks you have the night before, and then you ha- and then the walk turns out completely differently. And so I, I did seven walks, seven lullabies, and seven nocturnes. The, the way you describe it makes me think of a, a, a couple of lines I love from Walk 7 in this pamphlet, um, an imaginary stroll through some tinkling part of France. Uh, <laughs> tinkling does so much to transport me uh, in that line. Uh, and I've got one piece of paper left that I haven't uh unfolded and read to you and the word in the middle of it is friends and i'm thinking particularly of the way in which your books are characterized by dedications of poems and and in the notes at the back um that sense of a of a, of a, a generous and, and wide community of friends around your work i like poems to be gifts and people have been extraordinarily kind over the years. Uh, for example, Selena Guinness and Colin Graham in Ireland, uh, who put up with me drifting around their house, uh, being completely useless at looking after sheep, uh, and occasionally cooking something bizarre. And uh, I, I don't really have very much to give uh, other than these poems. Then the second thing is that the, the dedications can function as a form of citation, so sometimes somebody's work or thought or the texture and direction of their life is incredibly important to me, and I want to note that. I want the conversation to be between the poem and every aspect of that person's life and work, even if it's never known or knowable. And so I put the name in. And the other, I noticed, you see, when I was at Oxford, and had regular access to the Bodleian Library, one of the kind of copyright library when you didn't see anything digitised, uh, but you could call books up. Uh, I noticed that if you called up the journals and letters of writers, uh, that they all had fantastically rich friendships and correspondences, uh, and they were reading things you wouldn't have expected them to be reading. 
that I wanted to put in clues to my own writing to be much more direct, uh, plus I intend to burn my journals. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm jumping on a train to come and stop you. <laughs> well, that that does make me think, and again, I'm just going to mention for the benefit of listeners of um, another pamphlet that is available now called Light Sight, which is perhaps a, a, a collection of work that indicates the, the range of your reading and your conversations, your, the, the way in which you respond to other writers. Um, and, and also, of course, your collaborations or your, collabor- your ongoing collaboration uh, with André Bagou, who um, uh, provides the, uh, the beautiful cover photograph. Yes, André is a real genius and uh, had been... He had been working as an investigative journalist and a trained lawyer in Trinidad uh, and then gradually moved more and more into being a freelance journalist, uh, a performer, an artist, photographer, writer, rarely a person of extraordinary range and a very dear friend. And uh, he was reading all these poems of mine, which were brought together by the theme of light and are reworkings entirely of texts from French. I shouldn't say reworkings because I don't actually rework the text. They're entirely new poems, uh, which are expanded translations of some aspect of the text. And Andre photographed a lot of very ordinary things around uh, his and his partner's flat uh, and photographed them in ways uh, that they looked illuminated from within with a real kind of loving light of interiority. And then he just turned them into sort of semi-abstract things uh, she came over one afternoon and she just had image after image after image. This would have been around carnival time because the poet Kai Miller was also staying there and Kai was sitting at the table, extremely serious, as he often is, and looking with paternal dismay as Andrea and I jumped around and behaved badly with all these pictures. <laughs> and then said to Andrea, why don't we have, why don't we have a website to go with it? And the next thing I knew, Andre had matched this mm. from every single poem in my pamphlet to, to images and had a website up and running within the day. Yes, yeah, so that's lightsightpoetry.com. Um, and I should say that the pamphlet is available from Periplum Press. And the way you describe those images is exactly how I feel about this pamphlet, holding it in my hand. It's, it's glowing at me. It has this sort of lemon jelly inner, <laughs> inner light even on what's now quite a dull day here in Norwich. It was extraordinary that uh, it also anticipates Lighthouse and Anchorage, uh, because in one of my reworkings of UNESCO, or responses to the UNESCO, I used the invented verb Stevenson's on. Mm, yeah. It's a lighthouse. And then in another of the kind of unfoldings of what had been UNESCO's rapturous vision of the least little thing having a splendour, I borrow the buttery quality of light on stone in Norwich in the summer. I don't name Norwich, but definitely the buttery quality of the light on that stone. <laughs> Norwich glows through. We have now we've, we we have now been talking for an hour, and I'd love to talk more, but I think we should wrap up for the purposes of the podcast. Can I tempt you to a, a, a final fondant fancy? Or actually, you know what? The word I didn't write down on my on my pieces of paper that I meant to. Biscuits. This is the big question. This is what everybody wants to know, Fanny, is when you are writing, what is your preferred biscuit? I can't 
have biscuits and write uh, because they they make noises in my head. <laughs> in the, but biscuits have to be dunkable so they mustn't fall apart. Uh, dunking makes them significantly quieter. But uh, oblong shortbread does very well. So do those sort of flatter oblong coconut biscuits you get in very bad biscuit tins, old-fashioned kinds. Well, as, as you as you know in Scotland, what what's dunked cannot be undunked. <laughs> I think we've we've reached um, at the point of no return in this conversation now. So I will just say thank you so much uh, for your time and for your generous conversation on all these topics. I'm I'm aware that I've I've thrown things at you and um, you haven't been thrown. Um, uh, you've answered, um, given brilliant tripartite answers uh, on all subjects. Um, uh, and I look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and thanks to Varney and Jeremy. Now, Steph, just to follow on from their imaginary biscuit eating at the Maid's Head, what is your favourite biscuit? Perhaps your favourite biscuit while reading a book. Oh, that's a really tough one. You've got to be careful eating biscuits when you're reading books because the crumbs go everywhere, don't they? Um, I like a dark chocolate digestive. Mm. That's probably my favourite, dark chocolate and biscuit in one. Perfect. What's yours? Very good. Well, it's similar, but I'm going to upgrade it slightly to a chocolate hobnob. Oh, do you know what? I knew you'd be a hobnob person. Yeah. Well, they're like digestives, but just more. It's true. It's true. They're mm. like supercharged digestives, aren't they? Exactly. Exactly. I love it. Everyone send us your choice of biscuit while writing as well. I'm interested now. Yeah. Or just general favourite snack while putting words down. Quick poll of our listenership. We could compile a blog about the best writing snacks. The five best writing snacks. <laughs> yeah. To increase your productivity and crumminess. It's basically coffee and sugar, coffee and chocolate. Yeah. That's, that's all you need. And a pen. And a pen. Yeah, and you're a writer. There you go. There you go. Perfect. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, mainly to tell us about your favourite biscuit, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer's Centre. Uh, check out our Facebook page. And if you head over to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you can check out everything we're doing and also sign up to Steph's lovely newsletter. Please do. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. So please do consider making a donation to us by heading over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and hitting the Support Us button. We also have a Discord community, which is completely free, and it's a great place to hang out with writers from all around the world. We hold regular writing sprints, and there's a book club, and it's just brilliant for finding like-minded people and sharing some of your work to get feedback please do subscribe rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us thanks again keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode which will be part two of our imagining the city series <laughs>